there's a lot of different types of breaking changes. So obviously we try not to make them, but they will sneak in whether you like to or not. And then, I mean, the best option is just to just to handle them. Hi, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Sean, and with me today is Kedi Kremen, head of mobile dev at Formidable Labs, here to go through her recent talk at the GraphQL Galaxy Conference, handling breaking changes in GraphQL. Welcome to the podcast, Kedi. Thank you very much, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. And before we get into the talk, do you mind just giving us a bit of background about yourself and, and how you got into software and what you do at Formidable Labs? Yeah, sure. Well, right now I'm a director of engineering for mobile services at Formidable. So I kind of do a little bit of everything. I guess my specialty is in React Native, but to be honest, I've kind of worked with all parts of the uh, development stack. So from you know, infrastructure to APIs to front ends on the web and mobile. So a little bit of everything, uh, mostly in JavaScript, though. That's uh, that's where I'm happiest. <laughs> As for how I got into development, well, to be honest, I was one of those people that never intended to be a developer. I'm always envious of people who were like, you know, from when they were six, they were already coding. I was not that. I think I got my first computer when I was a teenager. But yeah, so the... Um, I actually started coding at university, so I did a maths degree, and um, one of the modules was uh, C++, so that was the first code that I wrote. And um, yeah, I wrote some codes, and I was like, oh my god, I can, why have I been doing all this maths by hand when I can, you know, write a couple lines of code and have the computer do it for me? And I was kind of sold from that point onwards, and then, yeah, my career has taken me here. Yeah, no, I had, I had a similar experience, like just getting started where like, I think one of the first programs I made was like a calculator because like, oh, why don't we just like speed up this arithmetic? So I definitely relate to you there. And in terms of like the GraphQL talk, I guess like, yeah, why did you think it was something that like other people could learn from? Or did you, did you kind of experience those breaking changes in your day job? Very much so. <laughs> it's uh, It was one of those talks that's come out of a problem that I am constantly fighting and coming coming across. And it's kind of raising awareness because, um, so for example, in my current project, we have a website and we have an API, we have a CMS and we have a mobile app. So there's like a few moving parts. And if you're only working on one half of it, or maybe just on the API, or just on the API and the website, you don't really consider how your changes affect other consumers of your API. So for me, I'm leading the mobile project. So I work on the mobile app mostly and on the API and on the CMS. So I don't really work on the website. And then there's a lot of web developers that just work on the website or they work on the website and the API. And because we are both editing the API, we are both in danger of introducing changes that the other can't consume. And in GraphQL especially, these changes can have kind of more hard-hitting results to the end user than you would sometimes in, in REST APIs. So you would actually get errors that you know users wouldn't be able to use a site wouldn't be able to use your app just because you made a change. And a lot of the time, developers don't even realize that the thing that they are doing is causing a breaking change. So it's more like raising an awareness that, hey, this is a thing you shouldn't do. And also there are tools to prevent you from doing it. 
it's interesting that you mentioned like the REST first GraphQL side of things. And I guess that makes me think maybe we should back up a bit in just in case there's listeners who might not know about it yet. Yeah, what what is, I guess, GraphQL? Yeah, it stands for Graph Query Language. So the clue is kind of in a name. And essentially what it is, is an alternate way that you can build your API to be queried. So when I say API, I'm, I'm talking about web APIs. So REST is... Is, is often said GraphQL versus REST because REST is the, the main big player on the stage and then GraphQL is kind of the new kid on the block. So people tend, people tend to know about REST and they go, okay, how does this compare to GraphQL? But they are both just uh, specs. So there's a GraphQL spec that says, this is how you could build an API to be queried. And then lots of clever people have gone away and built a GraphQL server uh, in various languages according to the spec. And the difference is mostly that, um, so say that you're building a website and uh, on this website, you have a page where you display a user profile. So with a REST API, what you would do is obviously you need to get the user's data. Uh, you would send a get request to, you know, API slash users slash one or whatever the ID is. And then this gives you back a bunch of JSON uh, or XML, but hopefully JSON, um, with the user's data, you know, their name, first name, last name, whatever else there is, and then you can use that to render your page. But with a GraphQL API, you would send this query, usually the convention is API slash GraphQL, and rather than using the URL path to describe which date, what data you need, you would send a, a query parameter with... Um, the format is the, the GraphQL, that's, that's the format. So it's like a string that describes exactly what data you want. So it's easiest to think about GraphQL on the problems um, it was trying to solve. So the two problems were overfetching. So with GraphQL, I can say, okay, I just want the user's name and maybe their age and the profile picture. And I want just that data, don't give me anything else. And then my GraphQL query would come back with just that data. Whereas with REST, um, I would just go, you know, API slash user slash one, and I will get everything about that user, which could be a huge JSON object. Nice. Yeah, we, we definitely love it at, at LogRocket just because it like, lets us still model our, our data on the back end, like in our actual entity relationships, and then kind of have that decoupled query layer to choose exactly what data we want. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's one of those things that when you start using it at scale, you come up with other problems because obviously one of the good parts is that from a server point of view, you can have sub-resolvers for all of your expensive routes, right? So if the user has friends that would return an array of, you know, friend types, but then this sub-resolver for some reason was really expensive. So you had to do another API request or maybe you had to do several API requests or maybe you just have a really inefficient database query. Then you could have a more efficient front-end query if you don't need the friends, don't just, just don't request that sub-resolver. But then the problem is that it now uh, creates a situation in which the consumer of the API needs to know which sub-resolvers are the expensive ones and then maybe try not to query them. So it's kind of pushing some uh, responsibility to the front end that shouldn't be there. True. And especially in that case where the front end team is totally different from the team maintaining the API, 
now you've kind of, you know, that that burden is on on people who might not have been familiar with the different sub resolvers and which ones are expensive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most projects that I've worked on, I tend to have access and actively contribute to both the front end and the GraphQL API. So I kind of can see what's going on on both sides. But that's not the case for, I would say, most people. You're either working on the API or you're working on the front end. And then you just you just wouldn't know. Yeah, so there's definitely a, a trade-off there. And in, in terms of the breaking change aspects of it, what I guess what would be an example of a breaking change? I mean, the easiest example would be removing a field. So removing a field from a GraphQL API type would be a breaking change. As an example, if you go back to that user type, so say that your user type had an ID and a name, and so the name is a string, and that was the original version of the API, and then you publish it, and you get business requirements saying that actually we want to have the first name and the last name separate. So rather than having one name, which has first name, space, last name, you would have the first name and last name separate. So it would be tempting for someone to add those two fields and then go, oh, actually, I don't need this name anymore. And then just remove it, remove it from the schema. And that's instantly a breaking change. Is there a way to solve for that? I know you, you kind of went over it in your talk, but for our listeners, like, what might the solution be? The easiest solution is to never remove anything from your API. Never make any breaking changes. <laughs> Always do everything correctly the first time. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> if only. Yeah. So I would say there's a, there's a way to do it that's straightforward, but it has a few steps. Uh, and it's basically add, deprecate, migrate, remove. So basically what you need to do is you add the field that you want to add. So in this case, uh, we want to replace the name with first name and last name. Then we deprecate the fields that we don't want our API consumers to use anymore. So GraphQL comes with a deprecated directive, which is um, a way that you can denote a field in a schema to be deprecated. So there are, you know, most uh, tools that you use to query the APIs would also like notify you that, oh, by the way, you can use this field for now, but it's going to go away. So you kind of notify your consumers that this is about to go. And then the next step is migrate. So all of the consumers of your API, so all of your websites that you know are using it, you would rewrite the code to stop using this deprecated field. You'd also need to release your website, you need to publish them. And then when you're confident that none of the clients um, are using this uh, deprecated field anymore, then you can remove it from the API. So there's actually like two API releases in this process. So you add the new field, you deprecate the old field, and you release the API. Then you go to all of your clients that are using the API. You make the change to stop depending on this deprecated field. You release that, release your front ends. Then you go back to the API, then you can remove the field and then you can release it. So there's lots of steps to it, but it's the only safe way to do it. And it's something to note that if you are building a public GraphQL API, so say that you are building the Twitter API in, in GraphQL, then there is no way to make such a change without having you know a V2 because it's a public API, anyone could be using it. And in that like deprecation stage, like the first time, you release the API in the backwards compatible way. Let's say that the API is something that's user facing. Do you have suggestions for ways to kind of present in the app or site to users that, you know, hey, 
time to update so that eventually in the future that breaking change can can be made or is there or when you have users who might not ever update an app or might not ever refresh their website although that's harder to believe is there just no no fully foolproof way to do it this is kind of a problem that you have a lot less on the web and you have more on platforms where you have an app bundle that's deployed. So, you know, on a mobile app, on iOS and Android, or if you were doing a TV app, or if you were doing a console app, or like anything that's not a website, because in a website, you're going to deploy a new version, and then anyone who hits that URL is just going to get that new version as soon as your your, your caches are cleared. So it's kind of a problem that I personally get a lot because I do a lot of mobile development. To reiterate, the problem that we're having is that we have an API and then this API has had some kind of breaking change. And then we have a version of the app that we're working on, which is still depending on this field that no longer exists, right? And then from a user's point of view, depending on how, how you're using it, when you get breaking GraphQL change, then you don't get any data back. So with a REST API, say that you had a REST API for the user, that was meant to return the user's name, but now it doesn't, right? What's the effect of that? It depends on how you use it, I guess. But generally, you would just have a page with missing data. However, what would happen on a GraphQL app is if you do a uh, request to a schema, but there's a breaking change so that the field that I'm querying does no longer exists, rather than getting back some data, I actually get back no data. So rather than showing this page, say, with the user, um, but without their name, um, I would instead just see an error page, right? So that's why having a break and change in GraphQL is a more significant annoyance uh, than we're used to having. Yeah, to go back to your original question, which I think was, can you uh, make people um, like upgrade away from versions that are using break and changes? In the mobile world, there is no way to force people to upgrade because, I mean, how, how would that work, right? Like Apple doesn't have this built in. Google doesn't have this built in. Like what if the person no longer has access to the internet? Or what if they don't want to, you know, spend 60 megabytes of their data updating your app, right? Because like not everyone has access to unlimited internets. So usually what developers do is we build in an app upgrade, upgrade prompt. So it can be... If your app is older than three months or um, you'll do an API request and then the API will say what the minimum version is you're allowed to have. So you can remotely trigger the next next time the user opens the app, you can say, sorry, um, we've got some updates, you need to update and then just not let them in until they do. And so it's possible, but to be honest, users hate it. <laughs> so it's one of those use with caution uh, things, but it's good to have it for a last resort. So I guess at Formidable Labs, how do you tend to approach that issue? Is it just to never make fully breaking changes on, on mobile? To be honest, I mean, breaking changes come in, in many flavors. We, we talked about a very straightforward one, which is like removing a field. But a breaking change can, can really sneak in. And even when you're watching out for them, it's actually quite easy to miss them. So another example of a breaking change would be if you change a data type, right? So if you change something from a string to a number, or if you make arguments to a mutation or, or, or a query, 
if you make arguments mandatory, or if you said, like in a GraphQL schema, if you said that your return type it was going to be mandatory, like it was definitely 100% always going to return something, but then you make it optional, then that's also a breaking change. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different types of breaking changes. So we obviously we try not to make them, but they will sneak in whether you like to or not. And then, I mean, the best option is just to just to handle them. You could uh, trigger an automatic update, like if you're working on a mobile app. But usually on the web, you would just need to update your website. But there's tools that help you guard against it. So um, the one that we use is called GraphQL Inspector. And it does a bunch of things, but what it really does is like it um, helps you explore your GraphQL schema. And you can set it up on GitHub or whatever CI you use to actually alert you if you're about to merge a pull request that has breaking changes in. And it goes like, hey, you're removing a field. Are you sure you want to do this? And then, you know, that draws everyone's attention to it and you can make an informed decision uh, if you know whether it's actually being used or not. Yeah, that sounds super handy. So I, I guess it's kind of built into the CI process in an, in an automated way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we use it with, with GitHub Actions. And the way you do it is you have your uh, GraphQL schema on your main branch. And obviously you have a GraphQL schema on your pull request branch. And then it uh, does a diff between them. And you know it's 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 clearly defined what is a break and change and what isn't. Yeah, it will just it will just alert you. It's very convenient and also um, it's very configurable as well. So you can set it to um, fail, like have a check fail if you have a break and change. So that's what we do. Our process is that if there is any break and change, that's an immediate fail. So you can't merge that pull request unless you add a specific label that says approved breaking change. It just kind of signifies that, yeah, we know that there is a breaking change, we've looked at it, and then a tech lead has determined that it's fine. Um, and then it's on their head. <laughs> gotcha. Yes, someone has to be very intentional about stepping over the, the guardrail. Exactly, yeah. Are, are there any kind of rules, I guess, that, that GraphQL inspector sounds like would be pretty foolproof, but are there any kind of rules of thumb to to know if you're making a breaking change. It sounds like the, the big one is if something becomes required that wasn't, or you're changing something about a required field. All right, so it's removing fields, always breaking, changing any data types, always breaking, um, changing a return type from um, mandatory to optional, and changing an input type from optional to mandatory. So those are the the four schema changes, and the um, the return type one is actually it's, it's easy to it's, it's not obvious why it's a breaking change, but uh, a good example is if you had uh, this this user API again if you had a user's name which returns a string, and say that originally I'm telling in my schema that it's always returning a string, so then on the client side you might do something like user.name and call split on it. So split on a space. And because I know that the name is always available, then I can always call split on it. But then if you change the schema so that the name is optional, means that you can return null or undefined uh, from the name field. And that in itself isn't actually breaking in, in that um, it's not going to cause your query itself to fail. 
However, if you return null from it, and then your client was expecting that it's not null and call splits on it, then you're going to get a JavaScript error on your front end. So it sounds like a manageable list of things to, to watch out for. Yeah, definitely. But I will say that one thing I forgot to mention earlier when you asked about what GraphQL is and what makes it special. And I did say that it was it was built to solve two things. And one of those things is overfetching, right? So that you, you only query what you actually need. But then the other ch- other thing is knowing what you're going to get from an API. So an API being, to an extent, self-documenting. So from a REST API, I mean, I'm sure you have spent a lot of your life trying to look at API documentation to figure out what the hell this API is going to return. What arguments, what query parameters do I need? What formats are there in? And with GraphQL, you don't have this problem or you have it to a lesser extent because GraphQL APIs ship with a contract so it's it, it's like a declaration of, here's everything I have. Here are all the queries. Here are all the mutations. Here are all the input types. And here are all the return types. So it tells you, like with every, every GraphQL API, you can see at a glance what is available to query in this API. And then that's the contract. And when we talk about breaking changes, then they are breaches to this contract. So when you when you integrate with a GraphQL API, you have a contract. It's like they come to you and go like, hey, here's everything you're going to get. And you're like, cool, I'm taking this thing. I'm implementing my front end and I'm leaving my front end there. But then if your API changes the contract, breaches it, it like removes some field, it makes some like changes some data types, then this contract is no longer valid and then that's why your front end is going to fail. And then that's why we're getting errors and that's what the breaking change is. So it is a result of this really good thing that we get. And one thing that I've actually been thinking about as well is um, it seems like such a pain that we get so severely punished in GraphQL with, with breaking changes uh, compared to REST. However, the good thing is that we are aware that these changes are happening. Because with a REST API, it's it's equally easy to make these breaking changes. And they're still breaking changes. However, it will be very difficult to track, track them at all, uh, to discover them, to communicate that they exist. So it's kind of, there's pros and cons, I think. Yeah, like at first it seems annoying to have to deal with breaking changes, but it, it really is failing as fast as possible. So that people know to look out for them. And I know I know on REST APIs, there's that open a- API spec, which I guess is like sort of an analog to the, the contract that you're talking about, but not, ne- not all APIs necessarily follow them and it's not built into the code. So I guess it's it's not something that we can depend on for all APIs. I mean, I mean that's the thing. It's there's there's a lot of things that we as developers um, just agree that we're going to follow because I mean OAuth OpenID is just a spec, REST is just a spec, GraphQL is just a spec. So, you know, if the folks at Apollo server decide that they no longer want to have a spec-compliant GraphQL server, then they could do that. They could just, like, add their own things in there uh, or choose not to implement new things that get added to the spec, right? So it's still kind of, it depends on people's understanding uh, of the spec. 
So I actually built an open source library that handles OAuth. And there is a very large spec document, obviously, for OAuth 2. And it's uh, quite difficult to read, uh, but there's, there's a lot in there. And it's very clear that all of these uh, services that have implemented OAuth have kind of, you know, read bits of it. But like, there's a lot of spec non-compliant uh, OAuth clients out there. And so you can do about it. It's like, I mean, that's the spec, but they missed, they made a mistake or they chose not to do something. Yeah. Like, there, do you think that's most of that is unintentional, that there's just a lot of little details that, that not everyone gets right? I, I don't think it's intentional at all. I think you're right. I think it's like accidental. I mean, okay, so here's a very small, like, spec, I'm going to say, in compliance. Is that the right word? Uh, it's actually in the GitHub um, OAuth API. So the whole OAuth spec uh, says that all the responses should come back in JSON, right? So you have the content type application JSON. In GitHub, they actually come back in XML by default. And you need to add a header for content type application JSON in order to get it in JSON. And that's not really, it's not actually a big deal right? You'll add that header and then you get the data you need. However, technically, that's not spec compliant. That's interesting. Yeah. And I, w- one other uh, spec that this just re- recently came up at, at our work recently is the the YAML one is notoriously long. And I, I think hard for, for people who have implemented it to, to get it 100% right. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's also part of it it could be personal preference you can choose to interpret something in in a way that you prefer yeah well let's, the english language is ambiguous at times so i guess it, it also depends on whoever wrote the spec to be as exact as as they can very true i think that this definitely gave people uh, a lot of great tips and and pointers for making graphical changes but before we wrap i'm just curious if there's anything else you want to plug any any more resources you want to point people towards I mean, for GraphQL, honestly, the main thing is GraphQL Inspector. It's a very handy. Um, I like it a lot. If breaking changes is something that you need to be wary of, honestly, take the time. It only would take you know a day tops to integrate it into your workflow, and it's going to save you uh, a ton of time and efforts in debugging. Yeah, I plan on looking into it after this. I hadn't heard of it yet. Well, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. It was great to have you. Thank you very much, Sean. It's been a pleasure.